0: Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio, supported by Fuller's London Pride. Official beer of Premiership Rugby. Support with Pride.
1: Hello, I'm Lawrence Delalio. Welcome to the Evening Standards Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride. I'm delighted to say that Sarah Elgin is back with us this week. Sarah, how are you?
2: Yeah, thanks. I feel better. You wouldn't have wanted me on the podcast last week. I was basically talking like that.
1: Are you better now?
2: I am, thank you. Also joining us from uh, the Evening Standard is rugby correspondent Nick Prowall. Hi, Nick.
3: Hi, how are you doing?
2: Good, thanks. And this week we've got a former rock captain as our guest with 42 test caps for South Africa and a rugby world captain his name is Bob Skinstad. Hi, Bobby.
4: Hello, everybody. Hi, Sarah. It's um, good to be here. Thanks very much for having me.
2: Now, before we start, everyone here, obviously on the podcast, wants to pay tribute to the great Doddy Weir. He passed away at the weekend. Um, He was a proper legend of the game and an absolute gentleman. Lawrence, you're someone who knew him very well for many years. He was just a man who was loved by everyone, wasn't he? Uh,
1: He absolutely was. Such sad news. It was news that we kind of were dreading and we all knew it was coming. But I don't think when it eventually came uh, sometime on Saturday, it made the feeling any easier. It still felt like a huge amount of shock. As you say, he was uh, an absolute legend of the game on and off the field. And I think you've only got to see the outpouring uh, of emotion, not just from the rugby world, but from the wider community to understand what an extraordinary human being Doddy Weir was. Incredibly brave, humble, courageous, generous. Funny, 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 funny. And I think it's just his warmth, really, that I will remember more than anything else. Always saw him laughing and smiling. He always tried to make every interaction that he ever had with anyone a very positive one. Our love and condolences obviously go out to all his family, his wife, Cathy, and Hamish, Ben, and Angus, the boys. I played with him on the 97 Lions tours, lucky enough to be part of that amazing trip to South Africa. He set the tone on and off the field. We had a very touching anniversary, 25 year anniversary last summer, which Doddy was able to attend with his family. And it was just a, an incredible moment. Every single player and every single coach wanted to be next to him and be with him. So uh, we miss him very, very much. And as I said, love to all the family.
2: Absolutely. He just he had a way he didn't need to make you feel very, very special when he spoke to you. Um, and obviously our thoughts, all our love, are with Doddy's family at this deeply, deeply sad time. Now, as you know, before we get into the rugby, I'd like to find out what everybody's doing this week. Bob, I see you've been catching up with a, a few of your former Springbok teammates, but not for the purpose of watching rugby, for the purpose of watching football.
4: Yeah, um, Sarah, it was, it was really nice to see the guys. Uh, you know what it's like to be in the spotlight in and around the three days leading up to a rugby test match in the middle of London. You know, everybody recognises you know John Smith or Brian Urbano or whatever it is. So you can't get five minutes to yourself. But I pulled a bit of a fast one. I said, let's find ourselves a, a football venue. So it was supposed to be beers at a football venue, but there was a spare room that was for coffee. So no one wanted coffee at 5pm on Friday afternoon. So we went in there and we said, can we order some beers over here, please? So we were completely alone for about three hours, which was absolutely fantastic. I'm still um, blown away by how little us South Africans know about football. But when I sold them the game, it it was a better sell than the draw that um, came out. But we got to catch up and reminisce. Everybody was in town for, I think, some of them for the World Rugby Awards and various bits of media. And so it was actually great.
2: Lawrence, what have you been up to? Who have you been hanging out with this week?
1: I attended something called the Scorselands, Ball. the room is packed full of uh, sports men and women from every single sport, and they honor one individual every year it tends to be someone that is not just a legend but a sort of legends legend last year it was you say bulk this year it was um dan carter so uh, we were all there to uh, celebrate the career of dan carter and, you know, what a career he's had really as a and very humble kind of guy. So, uh, yeah, we listened to him on stage and then we had a fantastic evening. And it was a great night.
3: And, and what a player as well.
2: Yeah, what a player. And he doesn't age. It's really annoying. Nick, what does a top sports journalist do when they have a day off? Or do they have a day off?
3: Yeah, a little bit of time. Yesterday, we just moved house. So I was in the loft trying to fix a gable wall. That was all. <laughs>
2: That doesn't sound very interesting. Oh, oh, it wasn't
3: great. Come on, it we
1: can't great. we can't finish with that. Listen, Sarah, if Bobby and I've been to 10 Tenereef, you've been to Eleven a Reef, right? So come <laughs> no on, bad. tell us tell us what you were doing once you recovered from your sore throat.
2: Well, see, I feel like I can retire happy now because this week I sang on stage, especially for you, with Jason Donovan. <laughs> I was wow. basically a Welsh, three stone heavier, two foot taller, not as attractive Kylie, but. I kind of stayed all did it. And yeah, so it was amazing. And loads of money was raised for charity. So it was really good.
1: Oh, well
0: done you. Well done.
2: Shall we put some questions to our guests now then?
0: Don't forget, you can also watch the full extended video podcast at londonpridebeer.co.uk. Please drink responsibly.
1: Bobby, actually, the last time I saw you, I think we were playing golf together.
0: That's
4: right.
1: I mean, your golf's a lot better than mine, but I did recall that I said that we've got a lot in common. We both played number eight. We both played rugby for many years. We're both lucky enough to win a World Cup. How come you look like you do and I've ended up looking like I do? <laughs> did you, did you get nowhere near the breakdown or are you just so good that you didn't have to go there? To...
4: Lawrence, that's very easy to answer. I always played with someone like you who would go and fetch the ball and then I would try and do something with it in the back club.
1: Honestly, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I know you, you live here in the UK. We're going to analyse Saturday's game in a little while. But I um, wanted to chat to you about your own career. You made your Springboks debut in the game that I played in, actually, in 97, I think, where it was then a record defeat, 25-14, I think, by the Springboks beaters at Twickenham. You obviously had a, had a real stint where you played for a number of years. What, what do you remember about your sort of early time within the Springboks? Because they would have just been world champions and they were rebuilding that team, I guess.
4: They were. I mean, I think a little bit like you, I started with some sevens. I'd, I'd, I played alongside Andre Fenter and Rassi Aras was in and around a seven side. And some of the outside backs and, and wingers did the same. And then I came in as a loose forward in a, in a Western province side, which was, I think we'd had about 15 years of, of sort of trophy rugby after being very dominant in the 80s. And we won the current... Cup in South Africa for the first time so Suddenly that propelled me onto the stage. I had a chance with the spring box. We toured at the end of that year. I think I only ever played sort of off the bench in those games. And you're right, that was my debut at Twickenham It was an amazing time. You know, we had guys you would have played against Lawrence Um the Gary Taischmanns, Russiar Russ versus Andre Fenters you know, big, strong physical guys who'd really s- sort of stamped their name on their jersey. And and the reason I mention it like that, I, I still look back to, you know, your guys' dominant England period and and I could name the entire pack and I could probably name close the entire back line same with ours in 98 99 but now because there is rotation there's revolution of players and you're in and you're out and you might play for one reason or you're a home squad member and then you're out and then you're back in i mean it's extraordinary how many more players and and they seem to almost cast away more talent than they keep as opposed to keeping guys together for the long time so those memories for me are probably the strongest i think that's where it started I had a bit of a break in the middle of my career, as as you know.
1: I was going to ask you about that. You stepped away from professional rugby, seemingly you had it all, you'd played at every level. What was the reason behind that? Did you fall out of love with the game or were you just a bit disillusioned or what?
4: I think it was a combination of reasons. If you look at guys now in the, in the sort of starting to treat the mental health kind of stuff, I think I was struggling for pure motivation. I loved rugby, I really did. But I, oh, I, I've got to say this and it's difficult because a lot of people always write me off when I do, but I found it the monotony quite boring and we were still in that phase when you know each year you would change your s guy and suddenly it was eight hours of gym versus six or four hours of gym and five hours of fitness or recovery was huge like now everyone was experimenting except the bloody players we were just subject to this experiment so i felt like a bloody lab rat they didn't really know what they were doing no they didn't and they still admit now we were just testing you know limits of sort of human endurance etc so we would go like my coach at Western Province, Gertzmal, who coached Ireland and Kat, and I just, I can say this openly, at that stage didn't get on. We do get on. We never had an incident, but he was a big, strong, bullheaded individual and I was a big, strong, bullheaded individual. So we were never going to just agree on everything. And he made me his captain and then was just forcing things through me. And I was like, hang on, sorry. The captain either agrees with the coach and we have a strategy or you can choose another captain. And he was like, oh, whatever, you know. Then we had a fight for about two weeks and by the end of that year i'd had enough and i said okay and i came to the uk i played for the dragons for three months but i just found more of the same because uh, mike ruddock was there and he was amazing I loved Mike but then Mike got the Wales job and he bugged it off and then there was a new coach Declan Kidney arrived and then he bugged it off because he got the island job I was like hang on guys and then each time a new coach would change we'd have a new fitness regime so I chucked the towel in and I went and I worked in the UK I actually think I was at a stage in my life where I was like okay if I play rugby until 30 and I do get badly injured or something like that you know what the hell else do I do for a living and then I went and pitched an idea to Saatchi and Saatchi and I worked with them for for three years I loved it I just felt free again it was lovely. I was playing amateur rugby for richmond we won a few leagues and and i really enjoyed that got to play with my brother and i got a phone call not the blue from the springbok coach jake white and he said we need a really old slow loose forward to complement uh, compliment our back row here he said if you can make a super rugby franchise then we'll include you in at least the players we're looking at. And I thought, well, I'll I'll never go. Very hard to turn down your national team, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, we can't have you on without asking you about Rassi Erasmus. He's not afraid to ruffle a few feathers, is he? This we know. But I'm just wondering, you know, from a proud South African, his kind of recent comments, do you think they're distracting the focus away from actually the Springboks achievements and, you know, on-field achievements and what they're trying to do and the success that they've had?
4: Um, so look, I think it's a good question. So so Russi and I competed for the same position for 10 years. Zero love lost. And I can I can say that, honestly, um, he's a bloody good guy and he's a very intelligent, very hardworking, good rugby man. So we liked each other, but we wanted to whack the hell out of each other every time we played against each other. We played and lost finals against each other. We literally competed for, for the same jersey for probably six years, seven years. And I like him. I don't think he's taken away from the victory at all. He, he does have his own sideshow and he will attract blame for that. I mean, Eddie Jones, who I've also worked with, has a platform and his platform has been traditional media and he plays it like the violin and he's done it seriously well.
1: I just wonder, Bobby, I think we all agree on Razzi's achievements as a player and then as a coach. He came in two years before the World Cup. He won the World Cup South Africa. I mean, the guy's a hero back home. No doubt about that. And with a lot of justification, but you know, there's a process for criticising referees. I used to try and do it within the 80 minutes rather than now (laughs) signing myself. But but I mean, I just wonder, South Africa are clearly going to be World Cup contenders next year. No doubt about that. Upsetting the world's best referee and attacking him publicly and personally and bringing a lot of heat on his family on social media. I wonder how wise that is a year out for the World Cup because referees do tend to, um, you know, remember these things and um, they do tend to stick together. And I just don't think it has a place in the game. You
4: know, well, I think you're right. I, you know, and and I'm not I'm not hiding from that. Let, let, me, let me just unequivocally say any verbal, physical, written abuse or anything that's that's gone on to referees, whether it's Barnsley or, or his family or whatever, is disgusting. I don't think you can attribute the blame for all of that directly at Russi trying to protect his team. I think those are two different issues. I think the one, and I'm with you, I don't think that that's a platform that you should be using to criticize referees. So So we agree on that. I think he's posting them because he's trying to help South Africa to win, which is his primary job. So so what I will say is I will defend Rossi saying that, look, my number one is the South African rugby team. And if I think that's what I need to do to protect the South Africa rugby team, I'll do it. What I won't protect is whether that's the right personal decision at the time. I, I do, do you know what I mean? I, I, I can't. You look at his... His internal coaching staff, how many people have moved on, how many people have moved away because of him being a horrible, vicious person? Zero. The players, they are unequivocal. He is doing what he thinks is best to help us when rugby games. And I can respect that.
2: Okay, well, as you mentioned, you're in the UK now and obviously been <laughs> here for a while and enjoying it. When you're not kind of Working on the rugby. Bobby, do you you still enjoy watching it? I mean, do you watch the premiership? Do you catch up on what's happening in Super Rugby?
4: I've started enjoying it a lot more. I think I probably took a a little bit of a break and I was maybe getting a little bit fed up with Super Rugby. You know, it went from sort of Super 10, Super 12 to not so Super 38 or whatever it was. And and I I just wasn't enjoying the endless, meaningless games. I love the Prem. I've always watched the Prem and and I love, you know, how competitive it is. I love the level of rugby. I was catching up with Sculpt Brits this this weekend. he was just saying as a sort of a microscope for who's coming you know that's where your baptism of fire happens you you come through the premiership as a quality player and you know you've got what it takes to at least compete to make the English side in particular and and I think that's been long-standing in the prem and I think it's a you know, they, they're sort of forged with fire, if you want. I must admit, I have enjoyed the South African teams playing some rugby over here. So I'm really looking forward to the European competitions. I think those will be good. It'll be a bit different. And if they can play the level of rugby that they'll be playing in the URC, the South African teams should be competitive and, and it'll be a bit different. Um, nothing better than a quick three-day trip to Cape Town to go and watch your favourite team take on the Stormers <laughs> or, or something like that. So We're we not I, getting I,
2: any of that, though, are we, lol? We've I've not had one of those in my fixtures coming up, which I'm a little bit angry yet, about. Not
4: yet, I'll, I'll, not will send the private jates and and uh and oh, the girl,
2: don't you worry about that <laughs> you'll get there I definitely won't. Um, <laughs> okay, so maybe we're going to have some more questions for you a little later on when you face Lawrence and his tackled section. Uh, but listen, should we chat through the weekend's rugby? I don't know, maybe, Lawrence, you won't be so keen to chat. Well,
1: do you know what? I was there and obviously I'm massively disappointed. I don't particularly enjoy having to be negative about the England team. That's not what I want. What I noticed is right across the, you know, the board, everyone's analysing England, but actually sometimes you have to focus on the opposition first and just say, do you know? South Africa arrived at Twickenham. They've done a great autumn campaign themselves, actually. You know, they've lost to Ireland. lost to France, two sides that are playing very well at the moment. So they're under a bit of pressure. They had five or six top players missing because of the test window and and having to go back to their clubs. They've had their coach not present at the stadium because of what he's done on social media. So let's not make any excuses. You know, South Africa didn't arrive in great shape and yet they produced a performance which was, you know, resilient, gritty, tough, you know, all the things you expect from South Africa. And in the final analysis, had they been a bit sharper, maybe had they had a few of those things I mentioned, they probably would have won by a lot more. So Whilst I'm quick to uh, analyse England as, as the whole world is, you've got to say, well done to South Africa. Very few people did that on Saturday. But England, yes, look, I'm disappointed. The RSG have come out with another sort of statement saying, uh, you know, we're, we're analysing his results. Well, I can tell you now, 2022 has not been a good year for England. It's the worst set of results since 2008. And whilst I like to paint, as you know, the sun shines in my head every day. I mean, I like to paint the, the brightest of pictures. You, you can't move away from The fact that this is a results driven business and a year out from the World Cup, you know, I am concerned, I am worried because everyone is attacking Eddie Jones. And obviously, when you lose games of rugby, he is going to come under pressure because he's the head coach, as Wayne Pivak is for Wales, as all these guys do. But as a group of players, there's a lot of senior players within that group now. They've all won trophies for Saracens, for various other clubs around the country. And players have got to take responsibility. You know, what are they doing in terms of trying to drive the focus? Because I'm concerned about the way England start games of test rugby against very superior, high-quality opposition in Tier 1 nations. You know, the game is technical, it's tactical, but if you don't have the right emotional levels, if you don't have the right uh, mental preparation going into the start of a test match, uh, you're going to lose. Now, Bobby and I tell you that the majority of rugby matches are won by the team that's winning at half time. You know, that is a fact. You know, occasionally you get a glorious comeback if you're lucky, but they are very rare. So that suggests to me that the first 10 minutes of a Test match are really, really important. And England, under Eddie Jones, I think uh, repeatedly, other than the World Cup semi-final against New Zealand, and other than one performance away in Ireland, they're all second best in that first, you know, opening salvo. And so... I am concerned, I am worried. It's disappointing because we are fifth in terms of our ranking, but we're so far off the sides above us, in my opinion, that we've got a long, long way to go.
2: I'm going to argue the point of rugby matches being won by half time. Wales were up against Georgia and Australia, and we all know what happened there.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions.
0: The evening standard rugby podcast with Lawrence Delalio, supported by Fuller's London Pride, official beer of Premiership Rugby.
2: Nick, you uh, called English performers naive, sloppy and immature. So i am kind of taking it if you didn't enjoy it. Oh,
3: I did enjoy it. I thought South Africa were excellent. And I thought, you know, the fact that they had 14 men for 20 minutes and they weren't stressed tells you everything about where they were. And, And they'll go home very, very confident about their chances for 2023. You know, I think they've got 30 players that they can put in their 15 that they're very, very comfortable with. And I think that that's a hugely impressive situation for them to be in. You look at Kurt Liarenza and his try, that was naive because the kick was too long. The chase was poor and it wasn't even really a block. But England fell for that and it gave them far too much room. Immature was Johnny Hill, two cheap penalties in his own five metres, you know, one the penalty, you know, it's reversed for pulling Faf de Klerk out of the ruck by his collar for no reason, and only because they'd been dominated up front and they were trying to instill some kind of uh, fight back. But they did it in the wrong way, and they have to learn from that because it's not the first time with Johnny Hill. He's an excellent player, but he gets involved in these things that are not necessary. I mean, Eddie Jones, every time England lose, he comes out, he says, "I oh,
1: blame me, it's my fault." One of the players come out and say, "Just like to apologise to the nation for that performance
3: because that's what the nation needs. They need honesty." Bob, you've uh, been coached by Eddie, as, as you said. In, 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 he was a consultant, wasn't he, in two thousand and seven? What do you see about his style? Do you think it's changed over the years?
4: I've got to be honest, so, so Eddie worked with Jake, and Jake was definitely sort of in charge. Eddie came in, I think, in more, uh, let's question anything that, that hasn't been questioned for a while. Let's not put sort of tape over things. Let's actually, you know, if we need to restructure our counterattack, then let's do that. And Eddie was great. He he sort of unlocked a bit of creative thought of you. And, and, and I think everybody appreciated him being around. And, and it, I think for him at that stage, it probably gave him a bit of a sniff again of wanting that international, because it was pre-Japan, You know, he then knew the Springboks inside out and then, you know, eight years later, uh, led Japan to a a famous victory over the Springboks. So he's clearly intelligent and talented, but I I don't have the context of, because right now it's Eddie's team. I'm not sure that it's the players and Eddie's team, which might be a bit different.
2: Because that's what I was going to ask, because I think it's probably, it's a very similar situation to what we saw with Wales, I think, at the weekend as well. Because I want to know how much freedom do these players have at international level? Because we see it in the club games sometimes, don't we? If plan A is not working, someone like Marcus Smith would be like, do you know what, right, let's go on to plan B. So is that applicable international level or is it different?
1: You know, players, uh, the game has changed a lot, but in recent times, the, the one thing that remains consistent is clarity. You need to be absolutely clear about what is expected of you as a player in your position, in the team, whatever team that might be on the field. The teams that play well, there's real clarity in what they try to do now. You can argue that people might not agree with the tactics you know we watched south africa for a long time kick the ball up in the air we didn't like it particularly but at least they had clarity in what they were doing and they tried to go out there and execute it and when you turn over your staff every year you can't possibly have clarity in your group because all the players that come into the squad keep changing by and large and the staff keep changing under eddie jones so these players as professional and as well drilled as they are are having to take on different messages
4: all the time and i'm not so sure that's the easiest thing to do and I mean Sarah just to, to add uh, th- that's the answer I think you're looking for just to just to say you know each new defensive person each new guy comes along with a you know 10 years history files full of new ideas whatever it is okay guys sit down let's do this and it takes away two hours of your mental time to just concentrate on your game for the weekend and you know I mean these days because of the pressure from the clubs etc cetera, etc cetera, you only get X number of hours together you don't get you know and they've got it can choose. and They've got to ask the recovery guys and the SNC guys. And it's come down to literally minutes that you have with the individuals in a training environment. So you can't relearn everything. I'm not saying you must never change anything, but you can overextend yourself when you're trying to innovate all the time, I think. I mean, South Africa have got this reputation. So we play percentage rugby, etc., etc. If you look at times when we've needed to surprise a team, look at what South Africa have been doing we haven't run a ball outside of our half for five weeks, except three times this weekend. And suddenly, you know, you, one of them goes late to the field to score a try. one of them, the inside pass didn't work, and one of them ends up in a penalty, you know, which fuck was trying to get the ball, but we, we got a penalty from it. Anyway, I'm going, if Russie's not got some master ball plan, How come against England, not expecting that at all, are we counterattacking as the team who's supposed to kick absolutely everything? And I think that comes from player buy-in and from the staff knowing, okay, when we need to, we need to be able to you know, it's, it's not rabbit out of a hat surprise stuff. It's rabbit firmly in the trunk under the bed, but we'll pull it up <laughs> when we need to. It's not, not going to be pretty to get there, but we might need it against the single side because they're going to expect to just dominate us up front. You know, they've changed their pack. They've put on supposed bomb squad onto the bench to come on. Okay, well, it's disrupted our way. So I think that's easier to do if you've spent this kind of amount of time appreciating each other, playing for each other, playing with each other. The one thing Rossi was came into this tour with absolutely no idea who his second best fly half is. Now he knows who his top four are.
2: And as well, what you've done, I guess, over the last few weeks is, you know, and especially at the weekend, is, is you have kind of more different players in, blood youngsters in, but you've not forgot your DNA as well. Well, they're not, they're not
4: think... all youngsters.
2: He doesn't no, okay. in He's a 38-year-old blue but...
1: sport. So there's hope for us a lot. Sarah, do you think if we talk about England South Africa for long enough, we might yes. <laughs> have that way? Is that what you... That's you <laughs> see, see <laughs> you what
2: judging you're 10%. <laughs> I had one more question as well on Eddie, but okay, we'll move on then. Um, I, can, I can I can kind of bring that into to my own pivot chat, I guess. Yes, all right, let's move on to uh, Wales then, because earlier in the day, they were 34-13 up against Australia on 57 minutes but it all fell apart, didn't it? Both coaches, Dave Rennie and Wayne Pivak, they were under a bit of pressure coming into this game. Wayne Pivak, I think, is probably still under that pressure. But Dave Rennie, he would have learned a lot about, effectively, an Australia A-side at the weekend. That was a fair statement, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, look, Australia had to win that game, as did Wales. So it was a must-win game for both coaches, both sets of players. You know, you talk about having um, excuses or whatever, but, I mean, Australia clearly have got a lot of players missing. We know that. Dave Reddy knows that. But equally they would have expected to have got more out of this tour. I mean, if you look at their results, I mean, the Italy game was a real problem for them, but they've, been, they've not lost games by an awful lot. They've been there or thereabouts, very, very close. And again, at the weekend, they managed to pull something out in the last few minutes to win the game. So even though results-wise, it looks like a terrible, terrible tour for Australia, you know, in terms of what they used to do historically. Actually, for those of us who understand rugby, you know, you start to analyse the performances, they're not that bad. They'll take a lot away from that. And know that when they get their best players back, I think that they'll be a force at the World Cup.
2: Okay, let's talk about Wales then. Rumours now that Gatland and his appointment is imminent, whether that's true or not, who knows. But like 10 months out of a World Cup, would you be changing your head coach?
4: If it's me, I'll jump in here. I would be enhancing the coaching group. I don't think I would be turning it on its head. So I think I would actually a point a Warren Gatlin. If there's enough space, I don't know what how it works budget wise, et cetera, et cetera. I would say Warren Gatlin's going to be there because you know of his experience, et cetera. We know where we're going as a team. you know, you try and send as positive a message as you can get after an abysmal autumn for Wales but you don't get out the long knives right now because then someone comes in again he's got to make all these changes does he keep you know the Allen wins of the world and tips as their senior leaders does he have to change that because he's going to need more than 10 you know so I would enhance the coaching group and and actually someone said to me last night, what you do in England's case I said I would appoint Scott Robertson as an assistant coach with the fact that he'd spent the last 10 months under Eddie and Eddie goes because Eddie's already retired post the World Cup but he goes win or lose with them on The journey beforehand to see what's working and what's not, and contributing his best. But so no, I wouldn't fire the coach, but I would maybe try and enhance that coaching staff. It's it's a hard call, I know, but it's so tough now from all those coaches and those players to try and start again with 10 months to go. It's
1: interesting, Bobby's comments, because um, when Ian Foster was under so much pressure in New Zealand, they didn't sack him, which they could have easily done. They brought in um, Joe Schmidt, you know, and maybe just changed a few roles around, got rid of a few people. Then they've turned things around and they're now, you know, doing okay. So it may well be something that the RFU will look at. They know that Eddie's going uh, after the World Cup. So, you know, if nothing else, it's a watching brief.
2: Okay, we could talk about this for hours, couldn't we? I know Lawrence wants to go and wash <laughs> yeah. his hair, so we better move <laughs> on to the Premiership. Whoa. Um, <laughs> okay, um, Harlequins added to Gloucester's frustrations, I guess, on Friday night. 21 12 win, wasn't it, over Judge Givington's men for Quins? Scoreless second half, and they stepped a little bit to the finishing line, didn't they, Quins? But they showed that they can win the hard way, Lawrence. Good defensive effort.
1: Yeah, I think, look, when you're a side like Quins and you're playing at, at home at the stoop and you want to keep yourself. You expect to win those games, don't you? And we can talk about it all day long. I think Gloucester have got a driving wall, which has always been their strength. But actually, you need to develop bigger parts to your game. They've lost a little bit of their stardust in Lewis Rees-Zammett and uh, Harris and, and, and Adam Hastings. number of players are missing in the back line. And I think, unfortunately, they didn't really have enough to damage and hurt Harlequins. And on the other hand, Quins, you've got a player of the class of Danny Care still left behind. That's when you expect your players who could probably still be playing international rugby they're the ones that really step up. So. Uh... It wasn't a, a result I didn't expect. You know, Quinn's uh, looking good.
2: Saturday's games then. Newcastle managed to win over Exeter Chiefs just their third of the season. And despite uh, being at the lead at halftime, Bristol Bears couldn't stop sale from another win at the AJ Bell. And Pat Lamb's men have only managed two wins, I think, now this season so far. Sunday, saw London Irish visit Leicester Tigers. 26-14 at the halftime, the Tigers won. Then Irish came back in the second half and managed to level the score, but a try from Jasper Visa and um, pushed the Tigers back into the lead. And then despite Tom Pearson's efforts of 59 minutes the missed conversion saw the exercise miss out on a draw and it was just another frustrating game for london irish which sees them sitting at the bottom of the table and interesting comments made um on bt it was said that leicester maybe aren't as good as the position they find themselves in and London Irish are not as bad as the position they find themselves in. Was that a fair comment, Nick?
3: I think in terms of Irish, yeah, I think they've been really close to it. But I think that's often the massive frustration, isn't it? Teams can be really, really close to everything clicking, but that missing ingredient sometimes is the thing that's the hardest to put the finger on. And there's an awful lot of quality in that squad, isn't there? But you just need, I think, one of those tight games to go their way and then maybe they might get onto a bit of a roll.
2: Absolutely. Okay, um, time for us now to choose our outstanding uh, player of the weekend.
0: Outstanding. Supported by Fuller's London Pride.
2: Bobby, do you want to go first?
4: Well, I've got to say I enjoyed seeing um, Anthony Watson back in the context of this England outside back debate, you know, who's the person who can help there? It was just fantastic. It was a a great, it's two weeks in a row now he's been been good defensively and, and back on attack. So I think that bodes well for him getting back into the England squad and, and going to another World Cup. He's experienced, he's quick, he had a really difficult, limiting time with an injury and just delighted for him to be
3: back. Nick? I'll probably say uh, Orenza just for the try, just because I'm going to sum up everything that was right about the Springboks for the weekend and the things that England are, are still lacking in that Um Next factor element.
2: And Lyle, who are you going for? Uh,
3: well, I, I have to um, move away from
1: international rugby because there was nothing that particularly inspired me at the weekend. So Danny Kerr, really. I think to have someone of, of Danny Kerr's quality, still playing prem rugby at the age he is, Two tries for Harlequins at his age, looking outstandingly good.
2: I'm going to go for Jack Morgan um, on a losing inside because I, I thought he was brilliant again this week. And to think he wasn't taken to South Africa because he was too small and his ball-carrying skills, not good enough. Yeah, I just think he's been classed this autumn. Awesome. And can I just have one more? Can I have two this week? Both from the Welsh game. Uh, Mark Nawa-Kwanita-Wase, the winger, the Australian winger. Like, for me, he just epitomised that never-say-die approach the odds he's had. Anyway. I'm going for two. OK, so let's take a look at what's coming up at the weekend then. In round 12 of the Premiership, um, Harlequins will be taking a trip down to the Wreck to take on Bath. London Irish welcome Newcastle Falcons. Then you've got Gloucester who will see Northampton Saints visit King's Home. And Bristol Bears will be facing Leicester Tigers. But before we finish, we've got a few more questions to put to our guest. Uh, Bob, it's time to be tackled by Lawrence Lallio.
0: Tackled. Supported by Fuller's London Pride.
1: Your full name, please, Bob. Robert Bryan Skinstead. Do you have a favorite takeaway? You look like you keep yourself in pretty decent shape, so maybe once a week, you go for what? Nand Schwalmer. Good kebab. Did you have a celebrity crush when you were growing up?
4: Uh, Charlie's Theron, that's easy. Um, last movie you watched? Top Gun. Maverick? Yeah, the new one. What did you have for breakfast? Oats and berries and some muesli um, and some nuts. Very healthy. What is your nickname, or what was your nickname when you were playing? You probably had a few. Skinner's was, is, has always been true, but there was a guy, there was a rugby writer who was actually a friend of mine. He tried to call me the pharmacist because there was a, a pharmacy brand in South Africa called The Link. And he said, I linked the forwards and, and the backs. Uh, Never took off, Mal. Never I- took off. Good stuff. And um, what was the best piece of advice you were given? Trust in whoever your God may be, but
1: tie your camel tight like it. Who is the most famous person in your contact book, in your phone book?
4: The person with the access to the most famous people is probably you, Lul, So I'm, I'm, I, I'm just head one. of
1: security. That's all I
4: am. <laughs> I don't have direct contact with a lot of uh, super famous people. I could probably get hold of Elon Musk for us, but uh, that'd be for next year's uh, World Cup. Get yeah, hold of him for Razzie, if you could, please. Be- <laughs>
2: um- Would he come on the podcast? <laughs> it,
4: it, it's unlikely. I don't think he loved rugby at school, but um, he's <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Certainly is friends with a lot of rugby loving South Africans. Who would play you in a film about your lives? Is that as easy? Oh, my goodness. Krasinski? That's is it, it. John, john krasinski K- krasinski yeah yeah he he <laughs> seems like a down-to-earth fellow we'd, we'd i'd get him to to be nice um who's the funniest person you know in my rugby environment it's hands down andrew mertens actually justin marshall said that the other day yeah, he is he You're is there, so quick it? he's so quick he's got he's always got a story he's so self-deprecating but he was an amazing rugby player and you know and he talks to a room of 300 people He he literally calls himself fat and old and crap about three hundred times, but he's telling a story about winning some triathlons or whatever, you know. <laughs> um are you a uh, are you a dog or a cat family? Absolutely dog family. What do you have? Uh, we've got a little miniature schnauzer called Millie. Oh. I can't wait to see you walk in there. I really I want to, I want to... <laughs> She's, she's, she's vicious. Be... Lol, don't stare her down. She's vicious. I, I bet she is um
1: <laughs> if you have to sing do you have to get up on the bus and sing a karaoke song, what do they have Bobby Skin start singing? The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Ah uh, sorry you love that, don't you? Um, I love that. That's my
2: favorite question of the whole podcast every week.
4: Who's your ideal dinner party guest? I will tell you one thing. So the only dinner that I can ever remember, it was like, wow, that's something never to be repeated. My wife and I had dinner with Nelson Mandela and his wife at his home. Literally, I was captain of the Spring Box. I think I don't know, he had an off night, he probably wanted to talk about why we were losing or something like that. And he sat to dinner with us, he had a half a glass of wine, he chatted about his life, his love for rugby, his love for sport, and just it was the most amazing, unrepeatable experience of all time. You
2: You were never gonna top that.
4: I don't think so, and I don't want to. (laughs) No Who is in your idea is the best rugby player of all time? The player that made the biggest impact on world rugby. Uh, which remains true to this day, it was Jonah Lomu. I'm almost the same age as him. May he rest in peace. Um, he played sevens against us coming through just in the year that he made his All Blacks debut. And there was never, ever a guy who was just that head and shoulders above everybody else on the field when he was on. He was just an incredible rugby player. He was on a different level. Well,
1: no one could just I mean, if you ask anyone in the world, as they've heard of John Lomu, they'll go, yeah. And so he yeah. put rugby on the map. And you've achieved everything in the game. Well, what's been your proudest rugby moment?
4: So I've got a very sad, proud rugby moment. I I was part of a a, a rugby World Cup squad and I didn't play in a final. I got dropped, but I knew I was getting dropped because you, Buggers, as the England squad, won a semi-final that you didn't think you were going to win and we didn't think you were going to win it. So we had two teams up, we knew we were through and once England came through, we were going to play a a different type of game plan. and, And I had to step out of my position in that squad. For a friend of mine, Vickers van Heerden, who's a a fantastic, fantastic rugby player, but he used to go and put his head and neck and arms in places that I would have feared to tread. So, So we knew that I wasn't going to play in that game. If we played against a different team, if we played France in that final, I would have played. And my proudest moment was that I was okay with that because that was part of the plan.
1: Fantastic. Listen, Bob, it's been an absolute joy to have you on. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. And thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to catching
4: up with you soon. No problem at all. It's great to see you all, guys. Thank you very much. And looking forward to next year's World Cup very much.
2: Yeah, you've been brilliant, Bob. Thank you so much. So that's all for this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride.
1: And don't forget, you can watch the full video episode at londonpridebeer.co.uk. If you've enjoyed listening, uh, then please give us a like and make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes.
2: Yes, we're we'll back right next week, but until then, thanks for listening.
0: The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio, supported by Fuller's London Pride, official beer of Premiership Rugby. Support with pride.